Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, we welcome back Keith McCulloch, CEO of the renowned Market Insights outfit, Hedgeye. With over 200,000 followers on Twitter, Keith has garnered a global reputation for his transparent, data-led approach. We kick off the interview by discussing how Keith and his team of over 40 analysts use their proprietary growth inflation policy model to paint an illuminating picture of the macroeconomic environment. We also cover current markets, where I highlight the erroneous recession narrative being peddled by some mainstream media, before we unravel it using Hedgeye's unique top-down approach. Keith also makes sense of inflation, identifying the Fed's baffling position before explaining how Hedgeye went long inflation acceleration well over a year ago. Enjoy. Welcome back to Opto Sessions, Keith. It's great to have you on the show again. So how are all things Hedgeye right now? Markets must be keeping you, like everyone, I suppose, pretty busy at the moment. Yeah, a nice wake-up call uh, for Monday morning, with an alleged global contagion going on. But uh, just you know, business as usual here at Hedgeye, so things are going well. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Well, I'd like to start uh, by reminding listeners what differentiates Hedgeye's investment analysis from your peers. So why have many of the world's smartest and most successful investors relied on your investment research for over a decade now? I think you get a different answer from, from different people. We cover a, a pretty uh, wide moat uh, of different kinds of investors, but I think the general answer would have two parts. I mean, people pay for our process. It's proprietary, and a lot of people might even call it their North Star or the process that they start with. And the other one, obviously, is results. So you can say you have a process, but if it doesn't help people you know, make money or save money, then that's not going to be too useful. So, and and in all of it's really within the you know within the lens of a, a former buy side or hedge fund manager, and and I think that that's unique as well because a lot of research that people get obviously isn't coming from a practitioner perspective. It might be a little bit more theoretical in nature. So, I think the actual doing of things and me trading my own portfolio, my own PA, if you will, alongside it uh, gives people a, a lot of confidence that, that that I have skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. It makes your insights, I suppose, much more actionable than some sort of theoretical-based insights that you might get from other publishers. Um, right, well, let's briefly dig into your investment philosophy then. So you formed the business in 2008, which uh, is an interesting time to start covering markets, to say the least. So what, what was the eureka moment for you? Like, Why found Hedgeye? I started in the late 90s, but I started Hedgeye, obviously, in 08. Uh, I'd spent the first part of my career uh, on the buy side as an analyst and then a portfolio manager. So uh, 2008, really, that was the moment where it was pretty clear that you could uh, provide people a service that was not available. So again, uh, helping them save their money first. I mean, that certainly isn't or wasn't back then in rule number one of Wall Street or the current you know legion of doom, if you will, of, of fear mongering or clickbait type advertisers that are selling newsletters. You know, they all have their own their own thing. You know, my thing is to again save and make people money. So it wasn't an entirely unique thought. It was actually I w- I'm still kind of quite shocked that. That that is unique, um, but again, given all the conflicts of interest out there, um, you know, this has been a nice place for us to be alongside the people uh, and democratizing, 
you know, a real research process that real people use. I mean, that that's a big thing for the people, if you will, or what we call hedge nation, is that they just have access uh, to something that they would have not ordinarily seen. And I think that there's quite a curiosity for that uh, as well. Yeah, well, let's dig into that then. I mean, why was it imperative to become the antithesis of everything that old Wall Street stands for? What were they getting so wrong and what do they continue to get wrong? Well, I mean, just in principle, they're wrong, right? Like when you start every day with 90% of your ratings are buy or your conflicts of interest with your banking clients or your self-centered interest in, in, in collecting a brokerage fee in terms of an accuracy rate. I mean, these are, these are major problems, right? So, you know, metaphorically, like, you know, the Berlin Wall could be what it is until it comes down and then you can see everything. And, and that's, you know, to me, it's, it's still like when, when we get down to our founding principles, which are quite literally the opposite of an opaque or, um, you know, a, a, an old wall. I mean, it's, ours are transparency, accountability and trust. And I mean, we take that quite literally to the bank every single day. And I don't think our competition can remotely um, pretend that that, that, that that is indeed the principles that they stand on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your stated aim, I think I wrote on your website, is to provide hedge fund quality research for individual investors. So we know financial jargon often precludes even highly intelligent non-financial professionals from truly understanding and accessing the potential of financial markets. So how do you adapt the hedge-eye approach to communicate with that audience? Well, it's, it's, it, that's been my greatest challenge and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, coaching people through it. Because we have, like I said, we have a, a broad moat of, of people that are paying attention to what we're doing and paying attention to our process and trying to learn it. So you'll have like the highest level hedge fund, mutual fund, pension fund, et cetera, asset allocator uh, on one side of a discussion that I'll have throughout the day. And then on the other side, I'm trying to teach people you know, why that is indeed a better way. And what's interesting is that both communities agree. So, um, you know, the, the more I get down to the basics and, and quite literally define it right down to the screws and define every component to the process, I find a, a little bit more success, I guess. And, and again, it's, it's a challenge. It's like anything else. You know, if, if you're a, a good player uh, that plays a professional sport at the highest level, that doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. We've seen that happen a lot of times. So I've you know, sometimes struggled with communicating uh, or coaching, but I, I also find it like my daily challenge. And that for me uh, is a great blessing because again, you know, waking up with, you know, God willing, two feet on the floor every day, uh, trying to get better at something. Um, and I, I really want to be a better coach and I have to coach both the institutional community um, and the and the individual subscriber, the family offices all together at once. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder whether there's sort of transferable skills between coaching that institutional audience versus the retail audience. I mean, it's an interesting um, access point, if you will, where you find them um, converging, those communities of people. Because again, if you're running a $40 billion fund in Boston and you're running you know, $4 million you know, personal account or family office, you know, what's interesting is that both are starting, well, I'll have this, those two people watching the macro show because they want to get into the detail of the process and how to quite literally execute in, in the moment in the process. You know, everything needs to be um, you know, timely and topical from our perspective because there's always a point to execute or not. And, and what I find is like, and again, that's humbling to have institutional managers tune into the macro show because I thought the macro show 
was just going to be teaching people that wouldn't ordinarily have like a morning research meeting or a morning call internally, but that's quite not the case. And so we have a, a, mm-hmm. a broad and, and broadening community of people that pay attention to that every morning. So that's really my like, that's my that's my daily challenge just to try to coach that, not get frustrated actually, because sometimes <laughs> I'm sure you've seen, uh, sometimes I can get a little frustrated because, you know, some of the questions um, may be a little frustrating or, you know, the game can be frustrating. I, you know, it's not, it's not, the, it's not like I'm not human either. No, absolutely. Okay, well, let's cover your investment philosophy, or at least the nuts and bolts of that investment philosophy, because I think that will help set the context for our discussion of current markets later on. So firstly, I'm keen to highlight an important distinction. Why focus on rate of change versus absolute change? Well, rates of change um, are amathematical and derived through you know, the secret to the universe, is, as Stephen Stogratz would say. Mm-hmm. He wrote Infinite Powers. He's a mathematician, uh, a, a really good one. He simplifies the complex. Um, but rates of change, calculus, is not subject to opinion. You know, there's not an opinion on valuation. There's not an opinion on the way that the world could or should be. There's no politics. You know, so f- focusing on just that to start, that is critical. Because again, it puts me in a place where I can't be a partisan hack or somebody who's just trying to tell the you know, markets what to do so that it suits my positioning. Again, the rate of change of both the economic data and the rate of change of volatility within my market signals. Those are the two big things I focus on, the signal and what we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, which are the economic quads. Uh, the signal uh, or the market, if you want to just simplify that, is always front-running the economy and the quads, of course. So uh, I fundamentally believe that I know absolutely nothing, that the market knows uh, most things, and it's my job to catch up to the market and or stay with the market if I'm, uh, if, if I'm on the right side of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, if we think about the momentum within those rates of change then, I mean, how do you identify when something is about to roll over? And by that, I mean starting to slope off from its peak or conversely, when it's starting to come up from a downturn. I mean, I imagine those right. are the areas or the, the interesting sort of points of the trend that you focus on? How do you identify those? You know, I'll start with what, what it's not. You know, it's not a breakdown of the 50-day moving monkey or moving <laughs> average, as uh, you, know, you might affectionately call it. Um, and and if, you, if you just want to look at that, just back test it. How many times have we, quote unquote, broken the 50-day to the upside in the dollar in the last year and a half, uh, for example, and they were all complete head fakes, uh, or in U.S. stocks, for that matter. So, you know, I don't do that. That's a single factor model. Okay, it's mm-hmm. price momentum. That's it. I use a multi-factor model uh, that is multi-duration. So I have, if you want to think about multi-factor, it's price. Yes, of course, uh, real-time price, volume, and volatility, and the volatility of volatility. Those three things, are, you know, basic three-pack model that I, that I built myself. That's my signal. Then I run it not just on like one duration. Uh, I run it on what I call the immediate term trade duration, three weeks or less, the intermediate term trend duration, which is three months or more quarterly, uh, and then long-term tail risk duration, which to me is uh, inside of three years. I don't go beyond three years and tell the world you know, what it can be or should be. What really defines the answer to your question, and it's a mathematical answer, is, is when the trade, the immediate term, starts to change direction and starts to get confirmed by, you know, is the beginning of a new trend or, or what we call... Uh, a reversal or a phase transition from bearish to bullish. And that is almost always uh, a function of what economic quad you're going into, by the way. That's why I'm so sensitive um, in terms of making changes or not. Uh, patience is, is quite core to my process. I wish as a younger man, I had more of it. But you know, now, you know, I have a lot of people that depend on that. So I have to be patient in points in time where I ordinarily may not be. Um, 
but I am now. I taught myself that. It's been a great lesson. But again, being multi-duration and multi-factor is, again, I think it's a much better way than the alternative, which would include uh, moving averages, as, as I mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Well, market and policymaker sentiment, obviously, are two factors that go into uh, how you make decisions at those margins, at those points at which the trend might upturn or downturn, as, as we were just discussing there. I imagine that it's not an exact science to actually analyze market or policymaker sentiment, but is there an extent to which our listeners and investors in general can make that system systematic? Is there, is there a process they can follow? I think so. I mean, and you're not going to get it all right because you are, uh, of course, trying to front run not only uh, the economic data through the lens of a market signal, but you're trying to front run the behavior of policymakers based on those rates of change of, of growth and inflation or economic rates of change of growth and inflation or economic data. So, you know, getting to that point, but I have thought that through, obviously, that is my framework. So that's why we call it our GIP model. Um, so again, growth, inflation, measuring, mapping constantly and stochastically, measuring and mapping the rates of change of that data and front-running policymaker response. A good example of that this year, obviously for the last year and a half, uh, has been that our model was calling for a breakout in inflation in June of 2020. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a while ago. That's a couple of careers ago, it feels like. <laughs> but um, you know, we knew what the response was going to be from policymakers. They would, on the margin, get less dovish, and, and some would get outright hawkish. The Bank of South Korea has done that, obviously. Uh, the Fed struggles with just trying to get there. Um, but ultimately, they've been wrong on transitory, and our model has front-run that too. So there's a lot of different ways to front-run the Fed uh, or the ECB or the BOK, for that matter. And what it really is, is the data. If I can tell you, and that's really my premise to, to our institutional clients that really need that. Like, If I can tell you in three to six months what the economy is most likely going to be, and I do reserve the inalienable right until I live in China, where somebody takes that away from me, um, to change my mind on that any day of the week if the data changes or the signals, then you would want to know that, right? You would want to know that U.S. inflation was going to 5% when the Fed thought it could barely get to 2%. Uh, you would want to know, like in, in Q1 of, of this year, when we said short China, you know, we're going to have a nasty stagflation surprise in China and Hong Kong, for that matter. I mean, it's bloody well September, and now everybody thinks that that's new news. I mean, so you would want to know these things, but these things were defined by our quad map or a, a change in the economic condition uh, of the two main factors, the rates of change of growth and inflation, uh, to use those two examples in the US on the inflation side and in and, and China on the stagflation side. Yeah, okay. Well, let's get on to that uh, quad map, that GIP model now. I mean, how, can you just firstly explain how you use economic growth and inflation and the marginal rates of change in those two factors to separate the economy into four distinct regimes or quadrants. Yeah, so this is our proprietary model, and it's and you know, when you look at the you know the two factors, those obviously aren't proprietary. How we how we build the model absolutely is. So mm-hmm. again, like like I said, so we have you know four different uh, economic quadrants that you could be in. Uh, quad one is when you have Goldilocks, basically growth is accelerating on a real basis, inflation is benign. Quad two is white hot nominal growth. You have both growth and inflation accelerating at the same time. So for example, our call on that started in November in the US and we had two, uh, well, actually three quarters in a row of quad two, which is rip roaring fun. I guess we back test everything in macro against that. So in quad two, interest rates rip to the upside, high short interest stocks go to the upside, small cap stocks, the the, the crappier the stock, the better. Uh, Quad three is where you get a, a toning down of that. So that's economic stagflation where the real growth rate starts to decelerate because inflation is going up at a faster rate. 
Um, and then quad four is like what we're known for, uh, <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh, quad four is when the shit hits the fan or when you, know, you have both growth and inflation slow at the same time. And, and, and then the policy response eventually is to bail markets out. So getting in front of that move is a real important move um, you know, from a risk management perspective. But it, it's also really important to not see uh, any market down day as, oh, we're going into quad four. That would be the opposite of the way to read the signal, which is front running you know, those four economic quads. Yeah, absolutely. I'm keen to understand as well how you sort of characterize that that model in internally. Like, is Hedgeye's investment strategy top down, whereby you overlay sector specific knowledge from each of your analysts, which I think you have well over forty now, covering each of the different sectors. Like, do you overlay that information after the macro picture has been established? Yeah, well, we start with that. Like I said, and for many, it's their north start. Certainly, my starting point. And investing is much that way. I mean, it's it's about mm-hmm. it's about reducing the probability of blowing up, and staying with probable trends that are going to continue. So mm-hmm. again, when you take that, uh, so you take all four quads and you backtest them against anything in macro. And I mean, we do fifty different countries, from rates to currencies, obviously to equities. Um, do commodities fully loaded. And, and what you find is that each economic quadrant has both top-down asset allocations. Uh, for example, commodities work in quads two and quad three, because those are inflation accelerating quads, uh, whereas they get annihilated in quad four. A lot of things get annihilated in quad four because that's deflation. Um, but it also provides a pretty damn good framework to be um, neutral. Like I, I don't care if I'm making a deflation call or a reflation or an inflation call for that matter, whereas a lot of people in this business, as you know, particularly if they're more of the writing nature and not the you know, portfolio and alpha generating nature, they just perpetually take one view, which you can lose a lot of money for an uncomfortable period of time doing that. So again, we backtest it all. Then we take it down to the sectors that work in each quad. Then our analysts who are very well aware of that, uh, take it down to single stocks. So we can backtest any stock within all four quads. So if you're a if you're an institutional client, because you'd have to pay a, a bunch to get that, you can give me you know, 25 tickers and I'll give you a report back that tells you what, you know, what economic quad uh, that stock is going to do well in and or poorly in. And those are you know, really valuable insights because it gives you an awareness. I mean, let's just start with that, right? It's, it's, it's not unlike, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, if, if you think about you know, the weather, um, you know, Dalio calls his is all weather model. Ours is constructed entirely differently from a mathematical perspective. I don't want to go off on, on the rail on that. But you know, if you have thunder and lightning, your your likelihood of dying goes up if you're carrying a nine iron around you know, on the fairway. Uh, we know that. But most people, when they invest, they don't know what A's are or B what they would do to their to their portfolio or their stock picks because they're generally unaware. Um, that's where a lot of our um, our clients are like, "Thank you for making me aware. Now I can get to work." <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That point around sort of coming to you from the bottom up almost with individual stocks, and then you map it back to the different sectors and then the quads that are conducive to strong performance within those sectors. That's an interesting point to identify a quad that a stock performs well in based on its sector is simple enough. But then what other fact do you need to take into account to you know, properly ascertain whether Microsoft is going to perform well in X environment? What other you know, fundamental indications or factors do you need to take into account? Yeah, so all factor exposures. So we're indifferent to which ones are correlating with the quad. Um, so again, we let the machine tell us what is working. To use your example, Microsoft. Microsoft is going to work in all in quad one, two, and three, and it's going to get crushed in quad four, particularly if it's a nasty quad four. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do if you're long Microsoft 
is be concerned about you know us saying that, that the probability of quad four is rising. Uh, what's interesting about Microsoft and a lot of big cap or quality, if you, you take factor exposures, so just to speak to it mathematically, factor exposures like large cap. So when you say, what is the size? What is the factor exposure in terms of size? Is it small or is it large? Uh, quality, what's the balance sheet? So do they have a lot of leverage or no leverage? High short interest or low short interest? Uh, low beta or high beta? So I can go on and on and on. But the fact of the matter is that when you go from, we just did, from quad two to quad three, those factor exposures that Microsoft has are highly valuable. And they're highly valuable and coveted by this thing called the machine. So some people who are just get, you know, that's what the machine's looking for. There are a tremendous amount of people that are running money based on factor-based approach these days. So what you're finding, and in fractal math, you'd call it um, similar sets or emergent properties, they start, the machine finds them pretty quickly. So they're like, oh, real growth slowing. Um, buy Microsoft, sell the Russell 2000. You know, uh, buy more Microsoft, sell your stupid small cap stock pick. Um, or now you're going to feel stupid, even though it's a good pick. You know, you, it doesn't matter. It's not about the picks. It's about understanding what quad three environmentally looks for at the factor exposure level. And what you'll find is that the stock's back test will reflect those factors. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, okay, really interesting. And that Microsoft example has actually helped make it a little bit less abstract. So perfect. Let's take that then and move on to kind of where we are now and what that means for investors. Um, I'm particularly interested to sort of paint a picture of the current environment and then ultimately work out what uh, equities, particularly given our audience, uh, are most conducive to strong performance within that context. So many economists warn that the economic downturn caused by the pandemic is causing a second recession. So a recession within a recession, if you like. I mean, this second recession might be less acute, I suppose, uh, would be an adjective to describe it, but it's more likely to have a lasting and even permanent impact on the labor force and wages at large. So firstly, you know, what's your take on that? To have a recession, first of all, you have to have uh, negative year-over-year growth, or at least going towards it. Um, and you can have a very shallow recession, but have carnage in the stock market on the way there. Um, what, what's happened is that we've gone from peak growth, the best growth rates we may ever see, uh, likely will ever see in our lifetime, to say, call it 12% year-over-year growth was US GDP growth in the second quarter, to half that in the, in the third quarter. So slowing to a double over the prior you know, cycles peak is not a recession. And, and by the way, sticking it in the fourth quarter. So our, our current now cast for US GDP in the fourth quarter is 5.82%. So again, again, the, just to put that in context, what is 5.82% or slowing to 5.82% growth? I mean, the prior economic cycle peak in the USA was 3.3% in Q3 of 2018. We have plenty of experience, plenty of track record calling economic cycle peaks recessions, et cetera. So it's not even remotely close to a recession. In Europe, our model has us now casting to um, from 2% inflation. You, know, you had your big cycle peak in the second quarter, then you slowed in the third quarter, but back going from 3% to 4% to 6% European economic growth in this quarter and the two after that. That is not even remotely resembling a recession. That is an expansion. Now, again, I don't think that it has legs beyond that. Um, and that's another career from now for me in terms of making money on it, hopefully. Um, and if you're looking for a recession or something that resembles um, almost no economic growth on a real basis, you go to China. You can find that there. You go to Japan, you definitely see deflation there. Um, but it's you cannot, 
I mean, if you want to, you can paint everything one way. That's a really easy way to do this job, and you don't have to work very hard to say stuff like that. Um, but we're, we're right down to the screws, right down to the basis point, now casting every single 50 different economies. And you know, there's no recession here right now. If there is a recession that starts to develop, that would be uh, more likely closer to the second and third quarter of next year in the USA. Um, all the while, China is going to try to find some, some, they won't report it as a recession, but it's going to pre- be a pretty nasty cyclical bottom uh, in the meantime. So you have to also get used to the fact that different countries are going to do different things at the same time, which, by the way, is also, if you backtest it, you're going to find that that's actually pretty common. Yeah. Okay. So that's the perfect answer, because my next question is about interpreting this economic data. I think there's, there's a lot of ways that it's done in the uh, sort of traditional uh, investment and finance media that we've kind of alluded to already. And given that third quarter economic growth, for instance, will be compared to Q2, which was a bad downturn uh, relative to history. Um, And if we avoid another wave of lockdowns, Q3 GDP growth should be the highest ever. So to what extent is it a confusing macro picture for retail investors in particular? Like how, how do they make sense of that? Do they need to look beyond just, you know, quarter over quarter growth or quarter over quarter over uh, comparisons, for example? We use a two-year look back. So when you look back two years, you're not just going to look at the pandemic. What, what you're talking about are base effects. Um, yeah, they're really easy base effects in the second quarter, but they're tougher base effects in the third quarter. So third quarter growth slows against tougher base effects, et cetera. I think what's going to surprise people in the US uh, is that the fourth quarter, despite even more difficult base effects throughout a reopening, you're going to see the numbers go up again. So again, you get the numbers came down in the third quarter, they're going to go back, back up in the fourth quarter. And that's just the way that we have it. I mean, it's a really interesting question, though, that you ask. How do you get somebody who doesn't do the math or doesn't have a time series? If I had a picture, I'd just show it to you. It's a time series. It shows you uh, where GDP is going from here. Um, it's easier to understand than the sun rising in the east. I mean, it's not that complicated. What complicates things are the way that the media, old wall media in particular, or this new new era of fear mongers out there on Twitter and, and on the internet that get paid for clickbait, you know, what's interesting is that they obfuscate the simplest things. Like the sun still rises in the east. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, you might you might say you boil, you put a frog in a in a pot of water and boil him that he doesn't notice, but try it. The freaking thing will jump out of that pot right away. I mean, people th- believe anything, right? I mean, and that's the other thing in this day and age, and Neil Howe, our demographer, has written extensively about this. People believe what they need to believe. People don't do math. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm generalizing. Mm-hmm. But when you said it that way, I do worry for the people because I built Hedgeye for the people to make them macro aware of, again, rates of change that are not debatable points. Mm. These are just facts like, like the sun rising in the east. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, I think you've clarified it perfectly. And that's the point I wanted to dig into because I think when you do look at traditional sort of publications and media out there, they now cast it, I suppose, if we can use that term, but not in the way that you guys do it. They do it completely devoid of any relativity. It's, it's completely an isolated point made without any data or without any visualizations, which I think is difficult for a particularly our retail audience to, to comprehend. But I suppose if we can use that juncture to turn our minds to inflation, um, administration and Fed officials seem to be telling us that U.S., inflation is under control and even decreasing in some uh, publications I've read. But by their own metrics, this simply doesn't seem to be the case. So are the Fed essentially lying to the market by saying inflation isn't extremely hot right now? And if so, why, why would they do that? 
there's a difference between being ignorant and lying, you know, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, lying implies that, you know, and you're just, you know, bold faced lying about it. I wouldn't put Powell too far off of that line, though, like in terms of what he did at the most recent you know, pivot. His Fed governors were a little closer to the truth, which is obviously inflation on a reported basis on their own numbers has hit the hundredth percentile on a five-year look back on any definition that the Fed has. So of course it's a lot higher than what they thought. You know, to use like Powell did at his last, you know, at Jackson Hole when he did surprise people with his dovishness, uh, to just anchor on something like used car prices, which is a you know de minimis component of headline CPI relative to something like rent or human shelter which is a third of CPI, which is continuing to make new cycle highs and ripping the, the, the faces off people that have to pay the rent. I mean, that's not just a lie. That's a disgrace. And I'm not here to help people get excited politically. That's just a mathematical fact. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else you want to call it. Um, my job, though, is to just, you know, again, if you want to tell me it's transitory, I'm going to tell you it's trending. You want to tell me it's transitory again, I'm going to say it's still trending in my account. You're either long or you're not long inflation. That's it. You don't have to be Republican or Democrat. You just have to go back to June of 2020 when we told people to buy commodities for inflation and short dollars. And you can look in your account. You tell me if it inflated. And indeed, it's inflated and it's trending. <laughs> so, And what, you, what we've also seen is a broadening of the inflation. So it's not just oil going to 75. It's natural gas you know, now obviously rocketing towards five. And you have a lot of policies out there, government policies that have you, know, you can blame the pandemic all you want, but the fact of the matter is that big policies like ESG or European carbon pricing, which was a joke, I mean, that, that's created big supply holes in things that, that the world needs right now. Of course, the government's not going to take any accountability on that. But again, I'm not, like, I'm not trying to be their politician. I'm just trying to tell you, if you've been long natural gas, European natural gas is at the, at the highest level ever. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah, okay. Well, so that's inflation covered, and we obviously have already covered economic growth as well. So if we t- we've taken those two factors as part of your sort of top-down macro approach, what quad does that put us in, and what does that mean in terms of an asset allocation perspective for individual investors? So when, you're in, you're, when you have inflation accelerating, there's only two quads you can be in, quad two or quad three, right? So China's in quad three. China is completely screwed because they have on the growth side, they got huge demographic problems with negative population growth in their core spending cohorts. They have the one-child policies coming home to roost, obviously. They have an industrial recession that's developing on the top-down uh, view as well. And they have real inflation accelerating. So they have, like, they're, they're different kinds of quad three. That's the bad one, okay? And that's consistently been our call since uh, the first quarter. Um, you know, then you have places like Hong Kong, which the Chinese quite literally couldn't care less about that, you know, have to deal with the market effects of that. Um, so we're short, still short Hong Kong on that as well. But quad two, like, like Europe's going to realize in the second or sorry, in the quad two, which Europe will realize in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. and a rising probability that the USA goes there. You know, you can still be long commodities, but it's, it's, a, it's a much more buoyant stock market because we're talking about, you know, quad two is, is the Mecca, you know, like you can be long growth and inflation and make money both ways. So, you know, quad two, obviously that's where stocks like GameStop came to be. But again, not a surprise. You should not have been short, high short interest stocks going into quad two. And I don't think people should be this time. I think that's a very dangerous place to be, especially with market sediment where it is. In the US, market sediment is god awful. Mm -hmm. It's net short spies. There's huge implied vol premiums in the options market. On every quote unquote correction, even though it's only two to four or 5%, people lose their minds. Um, and you could see that in the options pricing and the positioning. So I do think that the U.S. rally 
it'll be more um, exciting, if you will, uh, than you know another rally in Switzerland. It's been a great place to have your capital, but it's still Switzerland. Yeah, okay. Well, when it comes to that US rally then, in regards to equities, which sectors should investors look to be in as part of that sort of environment? Well, I just stay with what we have that works in both quad two and quad three, mm-hmm. right? It's more of what you get rid of. So again, we're coming from quad three. So in quad three, we're, we were long tech. The top three we had were tech, REITs, and utilities. Yeah. And when you go to quad two, you get rid of utilities because interest rates are going up. You get rid of your gold. You know, so again, in quad three, quad three, by the way, for gold people, uh, you know, I, I prefer people be gold people that can go both ways, by the way, uh, long <laughs> and trickle. Uh, that That is being a much more, you know, some people that are long gold feel quite intelligent, uh, quite sure of themselves. Stop that. Uh, you'll, you'll lead a better life, a better risk managed life, and you'll make more money and save more money if you just go both ways on gold. Understand that there's mm-hmm. one quad, to, you know, the best quad to be long gold in is quad three. We just came out of it. Um, it was a better quad three uh, in August of last year into September when it peaked. It had an 18% drawdown because we went into quad two. So now, you know, getting out of gold, getting out of utilities, or those are important pivots. Adding, I guess, on, on the U.S. equity side, adding more, uh, more beta or more you know, small cap, mid cap exposure is another way to think about going to quad two from a factor exposure perspective. Because in quad three, small caps are short and they obviously just were miserable places to be throughout Quad 3. So um, these are things that we're thinking about. We're actually going to walk through it on our macro themes presentation uh, later this week. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, we'll tune in for that one then. Final question on equity markets as part of this inflation perspective then. All-time highs were hit by the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ uh, earlier this month. So can we give listeners an idea of when we're likely to retest those levels? I mean, if you look at just a, a volatility adjusted return, so again, if I take the VIX back towards 15, I can get the S&P up 9% from here. So um, that would obviously obliterate the prior all-time high, which was established in the first week of September. Um, again, I don't do price targets based on some bullshit evaluation um, of valuations. Uh, <laughs> I use yeah. volatility. If volatility goes from where it's trading today, which is 25 to 15, 9% higher in the S&P 500 is a very conservative uh, estimate that's closer to twenty-seven or forty-seven fifty, I believe, in the S and P five hundred. You know, and I think that's an important thing. At least entertain the idea. I've done it. You know, that's I've always done it that way. I don't give price targets. I change where the price can go based on what the volatility is doing. And that yeah. I think it's a it's a very um, it's it's a safer way to deal with uncertainty. The worst thing you could do in a market is be certain that your price target is right. Imagine that you wake up every day and. You're, you're, my S&P 500 price target is 4,500. And no matter what happens all year long, you're just going to say that till you're blue in the face and try to keep your job. I mean, that, that's terrible. I mean, it's a terrible way to live. Um, why don't you just wake up every day, like I said, God willing, two feet on the floor, two hands on the keyboard and say, oh, if volatility goes here, the price is going there. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot easier way to do this. Uh, and you're going to be much more accurate doing it that way too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's, let's finish then by discussing quad one. It's one that we haven't discussed so far. We've covered two and three and four to a lesser extent so far. Uh, We've got a lot of equity investors in uh, listening in, and I think they'll be keen to kind of know when economic growth and low inflation is there and kind of when that might be likely to return, I suppose. So when do you think we're likely to see another quad one environment? What key macro developments need to transpire before we see another quad one environment, do you think? Uh, You're going to have to blow things up again. You know, you're going to have to have a, a quad four hit and a quad four gives birth to a quad one, you know? So, you know, and that's, again, it's, it's not a history that people don't know. It's, it's the 1980s in the USA. It's the 1990s. 
between 1993 and 1999, again, the during like a prevailing or a, a more pervasive quad one environment, what was happening was that the dollar was strengthening, commodity inflation was low, real growth was Goldilocks. But you had to have, you had to come out of the 1991 recession to, to give birth to that 1992-93 all the way to 1999 uh, move. By the way, same thing with the 1980s, 1983 to 89, not to go through the whole you know, encyclopedia of cycles, but I think it's important to remember them. Um, that was born out of the stagflation of the 1970s. So you have to, um, the inflation that we have today, it's a cycle of inflation. Again, if you missed it, too bad. If you're still long it, well done. You know, we're not going to stay in that forever. I don't need to write a book to try to be famous on that that's going to be forever. That's ridiculous. That's one way to not be famous. And I don't, don't try to be famous anyway. But you know, this inflation is going to give birth to a deflation. And timing it right is the most important thing um, that I'm striving for each and every day. And again, timing it means that you stay with it until it's not there. And I do think that Q2 of next year um, from a much higher level, you know, oil price could be at 85.90. S&P, I just gave you the levels it could be at. It could be a lot higher than that. And then the probability goes up because you're closer in time and space to the economic quadrant that is quad four, which is Q2 of next year. Um, you're closer to the catalyst and you're from a much higher level. And that's, you know, that's the way that I see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, remind us then which sectors are likely to perform well in that Q1 environment when it eventually does transpire. Well, quad one is like um, quad four or quad one? Quad one. Quad one is basically being long real growth. So it's the same. Uh, almost the same same as being long uh, quad two without the cyclicals. You're still yeah, on okay. tech, any organic growth, um, still long consumer discretionary. Uh, you would not be in quad quad one long like some kind of an inflation play, like a basic materials or commodities. Quad one is, of course, you know, disinflationary. Uh, that's why real growth, humans really like quad one, right? Because they they get to keep the money. That's the whole point. And again, you can make this till you're blue in the face. I, I just did. Um, whether it's the 1980s in the U.S. or the 1990s, you know the case for a strong dollar and low cost of living on a real dollar-adjusted basis, the Europeans should try to figure that out too. I mean, it, it works. It has worked historically. It's just something that you know, with the current money printing environment and the, the politicization of it all is still unlikely until uh, we get to the other side. If we make a quad one call, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Well, one for the listeners to watch out for then. Okay. Well, I think that's a nice place to end the main body of the interview with a kind of foresight and an outlook for the next, well, I think we cover the next couple of years there. Um, but let's finish with our quick fire question round. So this is a more general list of questions that we ask everyone that comes on the show. Um, feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. First question, and this isn't always an easy one, but I'll ask it anyway. What is the top mistake investors make, do you think? They stay with losers for too long. They ride their losers. I agree with that one. Okay, question two. Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Only read uh, publishers for contra indicators. Question three. What is the most memorable moment from your career to date, do you think? Getting fired on November 2nd, 2007. Well, yeah, that's going to live in the memory. Penultimate question, a top tip for your younger self. So if you could go back in time, what bit of advice would you give to yourself? Uh, be grateful for the people that mentored me um, yeah, and, and be more patient. You know, those are, those are real important things that I think you just learn with time and space or, or some, some more maturity if I had it back then. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned patience at the top of the interview. I think that's really important. Uh, question five then, and the last question. This is sort of the opto question. We aim to speak to people that have a differentiated approach, ideally the people that are outperforming 
benchmark returns. So on that basis, what is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? Making the turns, um, making the, the the turns, you know, the cycle turns, or if it's a if it's a single stock situation, making the turn from bearish to bullish. You know, obviously, if you can you can find a bottoming process or a topping process for that matter, making the turns, whether it be in an economy or in a stock, that's that's what differentiates the the greatest returns, and certainly something that you know you can't you you don't always get right, but it's certainly something you should strive for. Yeah. Okay. Great. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a lovely message to end on. Thank you very much for joining us on the show, Keith. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.